ComC.com is your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 26 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With a ComC.com account, you can purchase cards from different sellers over time, ship them home together later, or immediately reprice them for sale on the ComC marketplace. ComC reached an incredible milestone during this year's national by processing their 100 millionth item. ComC looks forward to offering safe and easy trading card consignment for years to come and continuing to focus on fulfilling their mission to optimize everyone's enjoyment of the hobby. To stay updated with ComC, please follow them on social media at Check Out My Cards on all platforms. To learn more about the exciting changes being made at ComC, please visit blog.comc.com. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Today, we've got a kind of a special episode, and we are doing a roundtable to talk about Josh Luber's recent white paper, Trading Cards Are Cool Again. So I've got a couple guests with me today to have that conversation, and I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Rex, do you want to go first? Uh, Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Uh, We're excited to be here. And uh, hello, Nick, out there, too officially. Uh, so yeah, I, listen, I'll, I'll say uh, what I am and what I'm not. What I'm not is uh, I'm not a financial analyst, market analyst, analyst or a prognosticator. Uh, what I am is a, is a retail manager, a professional who spent 25 years managing stores for uh, Brooks Brothers Clothing, Federated Department Stores, Home Depot, and Nike. And then uh, since I left the corporate world 12 years ago, I, I've opened and operated two successful uh, family-run retail businesses including um, uh, the business where I'm talking to you from today, the sports card shop here in New Buffalo, Michigan. So uh, my opinions on this topic are just that, just opinions. So please take them for what they're worth. Nick? You had that scripted. You were all over it. Uh, I'm Nick Martin. I, from, from a hobby perspective, um, I'm a longtime collector. Um, I'm your typical 80s baby who collected all the way up until the early 2000s. Uh, ran away from the hobby a little bit when I was in college and then came back in uh, about 2013. From a professional perspective, I uh, work in the retail landscape. I uh, work for one of the, the biggest uh, brick and mortar retailers for about 13 years. Uh, now work on the e-commerce side of the business, uh, focus on supply chain. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. I figure we'll, we can just get started by sharing some of our observations and takeaways from Josh's paper. You know, he kind of has a section where he talks about the history of the hobby and what we kind of saw from a, a market perspective from the 60s through the 80s and early 90s. He talks a little bit about what we saw in the early part of 21, and then he shares some thoughts on what he thinks that means for us going forward for here on into the future. So I'll just open it up to you guys. What are, what are a couple of the key observations or takeaways that you had as you went through this paper? You know, a couple of things for me, I, I thought it was really well written. I think that anybody that is ingrained in this hobby um, at any level, I think could pick it apart and say that, hey, these are things I do not agree with or that scare me. Um, but I think the one thing that was undeniable through it is that in no place and no form right now from the manufacturing side, would you have something like this come out? 
Um, nobody from Tops is writing this. Nobody from Panini is writing this. And so I, to me, it was relatively refreshing. Um, I think it, it encapsulated a bunch of conversations that are had off the cuff, whether the relation to alternative assets, and I know that that's a, a sticking point with a lot of people when it comes to cards, but there is a lot of parallels that you can draw against, whether it's against cryptocurrency or against sneakers. And the way that he did it, I think was easily digestible um, and it was relatable. Um, and I think for, for anybody who looks at this uh, hobby slash industry as where does it go at in the future? Um, I think that there was a lot of a lot of sense to be made uh, across those parallels. So, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I I like the fact that you know somebody who's essentially going to be at the forefront of the industry has taken this kind of kind of time to really put their thoughts down uh, on paper. That for that, you know, uh, number one, I'm really appreciative. I was very interested in it. Uh, I find that the type of um, uh, analysis, you know, fascinating to kind of get through. So I really uh, I, I like the uh, perspective on the history of it. I also liked his perspective from a, uh, an individual collector's uh, point of view. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting um, to see uh, to see someone who's that involved in it also become, you know, again, a leader in the industry. So that's that's very interesting to me. And I'll, I'll be interested to see how it plays out overall. I think it's a very positive message. And I think that the the industry is in good hands. And I'm looking forward to, you know, whatever their license agreement is, I'm, I've heard 20 years. So I'm looking, uh, I'm looking for 20 years of growth, I guess. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the history aspect that, that he worked in and not just the history lesson in of itself, but what that means to me is that Josh and the fanatics team is going to be approaching this new venture with that history in mind, right? They're they're not just going to be looking at it from, hey, we're a new entrant. This is what we're going to do. But the decisions they make are going to be shaped based on the rise and falls that we've seen over time and, and are try, going to try to incorporate some of the lessons that were learned uh, from the past. To me, that is reassuring. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the, the things that uh, I really, and I struggle with this, uh, not just from the, from the manifesto, the white paper, whatever you want to call it, I struggle with the sales data accuracy. So there's a, a few things about that that um, I wish we had a more clear picture on. And I think Josh did the best he could with, you know, kind of drilling down into what we do know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is right now, we really don't know how big or how small even uh, the overall card market is. I and mean, if you think about it, Michael Rubin, in his uh, interview, I think it was on CSB, CNBC, you know, talked about the card companies making a, a million, a billion dollars in EBITDA this year. Uh, so that's that's not sales, that's earnings. And he talked about how that's being sold all to distributors, which is not entirely accurate. The card makers have plenty of direct accounts where they sell to shops and breakers uh, individually. There's also um, a small amount of wax being sold online. Uh, from the card makers. Plus, they sell print-to-order singles every single day. Think about Tops Now, Project 2020, Project 70. Uh, I think, Mike, you're pretty active in some of those uh, collector sets. And then you add in, you know, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, Magic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, where, where are all those sales being reported now? Uh, and it's not certainly not being reported collectively. Uh, but more importantly, with regards to trading cards, is 
the shop and and show sales. Nobody is reporting any of that right now. So then you do all that and then you add in all the various third party platforms. And it's really tough to get a grasp of how big the market is or even how big it really could be. And the question is, will those numbers ever be complete? And I think that's a major challenge facing the industry right now. There are few corporations are always going to be at the forefront, but there are literally thousands of dealers and shops out there that will never be tied to any corporate structure. Uh, and understanding this is key to developing a, a healthy and a sustainable card market. I think it's the thing that we all struggle with, um, even just, just as a collector, right? Like, where is the source of truth? Um, we struggle to find that at an individual card basis from uh, any year, et cetera. And, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, or, and I honestly don't think that we ever get to a point where we understand how big or how small it is, just because it's, it, there's too many variables. Does a single, do you think a single threaded manufacturer across at least the three big sports helps bring some clarity into that? I do. Yeah. I mean, once, well, it depends on how they report. I mean, once they go public, which I think is the eventual plan, then you'll be able to see, you know, what sales are being reported and you'll get a sense of top line sales and profits, you know, from the card makers, which would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. But the and secondary I, market, I mean, I, do we do we really know? I mean, what do you guys think? How big is the secondary market compared to the primary market right now? Do we really know? I mean, do we even have a guess? I think we have guesses, or I think there are guesses. <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly what those are, but I think, you know, as you said, I don't know that there's going to be a definitive source of what that overall overall market is, but I think there will be pockets of anecdotal segments that can be somewhat rolled up to, to serve as a proxy for the overall health and the overall size of the market, right? I, th I think yep. there will be estimates on the number of individual hobby shops that rise and fall, right? How many do we have at any given time? I think just the nature of the number of secondary markets and uh, online marketplaces that we're seeing you know, come up, you know, I think there's going to be opportunity, MySlabs, ComC, Sportlots, eBay, um, some of these, you know, other marketplaces, we're going to see those um, rise and fall and the amount of inventory that's available on those um, come and go. The, the auction houses and things, you know, we've seen some of those and their results grow, uh, rise and fall. I think we're going to be able to observe some of those broader trends from all of those different the different platforms to get some semblance of the health and, and what we're starting to see. But I don't know that we're going to ever get to that point where we've got definitive results. I think we had a more clear picture when some of these other companies, like when Tops was public, right? They were reporting more sales. They were re required to report where things were going. Um, I think when Fanatics is public, like you said, we're going to see more of that. But I don't know that we'll ever get a full picture. I really don't think we'll get a full picture when you start to bundle in the the sales results of individual card shops or the sales results from shows. That's going to be a, a near impossible task. When they talk about the market is regardless of the exact number, the focus that he has on growing the overall market by growing the number of collectors and people who are participating, that's the, the overarching positive that I saw from the, the paper. He alluded to, um, you know, the impact at one point in the paper, he alluded to the impact of shows on 
eBay sales. And I think that's a direct correlation. I mean, I think that's, that's a key takeaway for me too. And it, but again, we don't know the exact impact, but I think it's important to understand that month to month eBay sales, which a lot of people kind of refer to as, uh, you know, whether they're establishing comps uh, for individual cards or they're just looking at their overall sales, it just doesn't tell the whole picture. So there's so many other parts of the hobby. I mean, uh, you mentioned shops. I, I don't even know how many shops, independent shops there are in the U.S. There are roughly 600 individual shops participating in Panini's Player of the Day promo right now. Um, but that, again, does not capture all of them. And then I don't know how many shows are going on, too. I mean, every you mentioned it earlier, Mike, uh, before we started. I mean, there's shows every weekend all around us. I'm going to take a break in the conversation for a minute to tell you about Underdog Collectibles, the online shop run by collectors for collectors. They break new product every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday night. You can check out udogcollect.com to find out what they're going to be breaking this week. It looks like some national treasures, some illusions, basketball, a baseball mixer, some triple threads, baseball, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Make sure you jump in their live breaks that air on Facebook, whatnot, or YouTube. And wherever you buy, sell, and trade, you can always bet on the underdog. Wherever you find them, make sure you tell them that Wax Pack Hero sent you. Some of the initial focus, he kind of used the the card ladder fifty as a as a proxy for the overall market, but he was also quick to point out that that really kind of focused on a, a certain small segment of higher end cards. But that if you looked at eBay's overall card sales in the second quarter, even though things had pulled back, and we see some of the peak prices of big cards coming down, the overall sales volume of cards on eBay actually grew in the second quarter. And I right. think that's another one of the things that I, I took away and that I like when you think about the, that overall health of the <laughs> hobby that we're seeing right now is there is interest at all price levels, right? And there, there's more to the card market than the big glitz and glamour, big, big time cards. There's a lot of activity and collecting taking place at the mid and lower ends too. And so even though you see some peak high price cards coming off of those highs, there's still a lot of, of activity and interest bubbling up underneath. Right. I mean, that's, that's a, uh, that index is, you know, maybe the, those cards are the ones that get the most attention um, as you say, because of the higher end, but uh, I'd argue that, you know, the, the second category that you mentioned is really the driver. Uh, that's the vast majority of the sales volume. I mean, there's most people uh, are not regularly trading those 50 cards on a daily basis. And there are, you know, there are shops and dealers that, that may go, I don't know, months, maybe even a year without ever seeing or selling any of those cards that are listed there and still do quite well. Yeah, that second quarter data to me means that that's eyeballs uh, coming into the hobby. And I think if you look at like the natural progression for most collectors as they start, like it is here, I'm going to buy a blaster and then I'm going to buy like my first hobby box. And then I've bought my first hundred dollar single and then they work themselves up. And I think that like anyone with inside of this space now that that collects like there's it, it used to be like you were you were in one cut, right? Like you were either a collector or like. You, so you bought and sold and that was it. I, I think now there's a big overlap in the two because it, the hobby has gotten to a point from financial perspective to where there's a ton of, it, there has to be a ton of overlap. Like I am a collector first and foremost, but 
I have to buy and sell stuff just to sustain my collectability with inside of it. And so like, if you, if you think of it as more eyeballs are coming in and like their entry point is low end. I mean, we used to have an offering of like, you could walk into Target or Walmart and you could get, grab your cards, but we all know that that, that no longer exists. I, I do think that the second quarter data was, was encouraging. And then even more so the timeline that he laid out through just this year of all of the money that came in, like I've told a lot of the people that, that come to me and say, Hey, how do I start? Is this thing going to pop, et cetera. I'm like, there's too much money in this thing now to just pop. Yeah, it, it is. I, this isn't just uh, one day we're just going to wake up and then cards are irrelevant. It, it, it can't be. There's far too much money into it. When you're looking at small niche pieces with inside of the hobby that are starting to show hyper growth, whether that's soccer, whether that's F1 or Fortnite or whatever it is, look at like what, what happened to influence that. Like F1, we had leveraged the Netflix documentary that brought in a ton of new eyeballs into the hobby that said, Hey, I never, I never even knew that cards existed or that, that they existed for F1. Ken Golden has a show that is now going to come out on Netflix. Like if that happens for cards and it has the same impact that F1 did on that specific segment of the hobby, to me, we're going to have a ton of new people coming in, which is good for everybody. He covers as part of that timeline, like you said, the money that's coming in, a piece of that are players at all different places within the overall hobby ecosystem, right? Yep. There are sm even small manufacturers that are, are starting to pop up and gain more traction. There are several new marketplaces that have come up. There are new supply manufacturers that are coming up. One of the things that he touches on is for the, the growth that he wants to see for the overall hobby, for that to happen, it's going to take the whole hobby ecosystem working mm -hmm. together and being successful. Now, some people are saying that this is one of the things that they're afraid of because they want to play a role in that whole ecosystem. But he does talk about wanting hobby shops to succeed, wanting all of these other, other components to succeed. How, how did you read that section that talked about that whole hobby ecosystem working yeah. together and thriving? Did you, did you have any takeaways from, from that concept? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I, like if if we look at the past two years, like the underlying thing that, that did happen to all of us is that COVID impacted everybody in, in one way or another. And to me, what that had, had did, not only just in the card world, but everything, it showed deficiencies with inside of infrastructure and ability to support growth and, and not just uh, normal sustainable growth, any any type of spike. We saw that in, in normal commerce. Uh, I mean, go try to buy a vehicle right now. They weren't prepared. <laughs> like we're grading, they weren't prepared. Like there's a lot of parallels you can draw across that. And so looking at now, if all of the money that is coming in from a support perspective, knowing that that is an important cog into sustainable growth across every bit of the hobby, whether it's hobby shops, distributors, collectors itself, retail, grading, like you name it. I, I think it's encouraging. Um, I think that we're we're gonna see uh, more consolidation with inside of each of those spaces because we inherently have to. Because we're as collectors, right? We all look for a source of truth. We look for a source of truth for, with grading. That's a perfect example. Right now, PSA is the default, or most of the time is the default. I don't know if there's a world where ten grading companies can exist because it's it's incredibly hard when you're talking about perceived value 
and what that looks like from a customer lens. And so to me, like you'll see consolidation on that front. From the hobby shop front, I my uh, local uh, local shop here in Seattle that opened up right at the beginning of COVID, um, I've become pretty good friends with him. And we talk on the business aspect of this quite a bit. Um, he's kind of opened up the opened up the curtain a little bit to where we can talk about the interaction with between distributors and whatnot. He doesn't get a ton of direct allocation um, because he's a newer shop. And to me, like that is the biggest question mark of what role do they play with inside of the hobby? Because I had I, asked him a few questions of, of hey, at release date, um, knowing that you don't get direct allocation, like how do you price? <clears throat> like I price based off of what my what my my replacement box for that is then going to cost. I'm like, well, who's making money then? Like, because I do know from another shop that I know in Montana, what exactly that box of Dr. Scrum cost at direct and the two prices didn't jive. So you have to say, is it hobby shop making money? Is the distributor making money? If the distributor is making money and that is, that is the biggest point here and, and maybe a barrier to entry to a lot of people with inside of this hobby, I, like to me, if I'm fanatics, the smart thing to do is to say bye. Like if the only thing that they're relying upon is feet on the ground to hit that from a distribution perspective, trust me, fanatics can find a different way around that and or they can leverage another big company or two that have the infrastructure to support that. So to me, that's the biggest question mark. And I'm sure as a shop owner, that is probably the same same for you. Um, but I, it's encouraging. I, I think that the, the capital is going in to support all of the things now that are necessary outside of just the wax itself. Rex, as a shop owner, how do you how do you look at that that concept of the whole hobby ecosystem working together? Well, I, I hear a lot about how uh, you know this. Everybody has a different opinion about what this is going to do to shop owners, distributors, and breakers. So, uh, first thing I would say is, uh, you know, I have, again, my opinions are just what they are, but uh, the, what I would say is it's important to understand what Fanatics does now. So, first and foremost, Fanatics already sells directly to many hobby shops and breakers. They sell apparel and they sell memorabilia, but in addition to that, they occasionally sell sealed wax. And we have an account with Fanatics. We bought all three of those things, those items from them, and we do so regularly. So they have a distribution model that already includes shops and some breakers. I, I don't have as much exposure to how much breakers uh, buy for them, but lots of shops already buy from Fanatics. So that, that exists now. I think distributors are most at risk. Uh, again, I, we have we buy from distributors uh, as well as from direct uh, direct from card manufacturers. The distributors uh, model is not working as it was intended to. It's just not. I mean, there's no way around it. Uh, the demand for 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 sealed wax is so high. Uh, it is really uh, destroyed the intent of that third party distribution model in that they they make money or they make a certain cut. And then they sell it to the to the retailers who make a certain cut, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, greed has kind of taken over there, unfortunately. And, um, you know, that's where we are. Fanatics does not need, in my opinion, they don't need the third party distributors. I think breakers are not at risk as a group. And I don't think shop owners are at risk as a group. But Fanatics will absolutely be selective about who they sell to. But let's be honest, that happens now. You know, uh, some shops get allocations, some, some shops don't. 
So I think if you're a shop owner or you're a breaker, you need to be prepared for a shift in that dynamic and you need to work to make sure that you protect yourselves. The other part of this is not just the allocations of whether you get product or not, but it's what Nick touched on is the margins. So card makers right now have you know margins that they sell to either direct or they sell to third party distributors and then everybody gets a cut. Uh, if Fanatics is selling direct to consumer and they're also going to continue to sell direct to uh, hobby shops and or breakers, the question now becomes what are their margins going to be on the average? And does that make sense for a lot of people who are still uh, in it? And uh, will they continue to be in it? And can they continue to make money on whatever those margins are? Uh, so those, those are big questions. But overall, after reading you know, from uh, this, this from Josh and also after hearing what he had to say about shops at the industry summit, uh, I think shops in general are going to be fine. And they just need to be prepared to shift their focus. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I think we're good. I've got a couple more things that I want to um, touch on as we think about the the segment that is the the future of the hobby and where things might be going going next. One of the things that he talks about in there is the ROI of wax. And in that, he kind of outlines an equation that he he picked up that says the ROI equals the actual current value of the cards pulled plus expected future appreciation, plus the expected value of player emergence over time. So people who are um, unheralded prospects that end up being something good, plus the experience that the collector gets when opening, opening those cards. I like this because it combines both the actual financial aspect of the cards inside those packs, as well as the experiential returns. Any thoughts on on that type of an of an equation when looking at what the the results are from opening wax or what that expected value is from opening wax? Yeah, to me when I when I read that, so I don't, uh, I don't Mike, if if you've seen on your timeline or not. So I I heavily PC a singular player. That's about it, and it's Aaron Donald. Um, and so I've since 2014, I've normally ripped probably six to ten boxes of Topps Chrome. Uh, a month. And at one point it was down to like $33 a box. It was dirt cheap. Um, but it, it's funny that I can draw this parallel with inside of football, given the longevity of players with inside of it. But that, that specific product was uh, incredibly resonating throughout that entire, that entire bit. Because if you go back to that draft class, um, it was a perceived weak quarterback class, especially if you go back like three or four years, Derek Carr was at a low, Jimmy Garoppolo was on a lowly team, Blake Bortles was at a league, so was Johnny Manziel, et cetera, et cetera. But then now if you fast forward to today, um, it's loaded. Um, you've got Derek Carr as a potential MVP. You have Aaron Donalds as three-time defensive player of the year. You've got Cleo Mack, who's great. And you've got an arguably one of the best wide receiver classes that the league's ever seen. And so now this, this wax that was $30 is, has, is like $220 a box. And I, I, I kicked myself today because I wish I would have bought a ton more of it back then. Um, but to me, I love that product. Uh, the smell, he references the smell of prism. Like when I rip a case of Topps Chrome in my basement, like, it smells like Topps Chrome and I love it. And it's nostalgic. And I, to me, outside of even the cost of, of what I can get from a return perspective, um, there's an intrinsic value there that um, is enjoyable as a collector to rip. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many different parts of, of, you know, ripping wax, you know, we see different angles every day in the shop. You know, some people are focused 
solely on the immediate ROI. And I see that, you know, also on social media. Oh, I ripped this box and I didn't get my money back. Right. So there are those people that are only focused on that. But as he correctly pointed out, there's so much more to it than that. So there's the fun aspect of it. You know, there's the nostalgia. There's just, you know, what it makes you feel. Uh, you know, there's, there is that ROI, you know, the immediate ROI. But I mean, so back in 2011, nobody was hoarding, you know, Mike Trout autos necessarily as they pulled them and thinking, okay, this is going to be, you know, a thousand or a multi-thousand dollar card. Um, you know, nobody was doing that then, but look what it, look what it became. Same with, you know, Tom Brady, same with Patrick Mahomes. I mean, then you can name them, you know, as they go. I mean, every single year, there's somebody, it seems like that emerges from a product that ends up being a superstar. So uh, there's that long-term ROI that I think also has to be considered when you're talking about wax. Um, but beyond that, what we have to understand is that wax is where it all starts. I mean, you can't get singles without them starting in wax for the most part, with the exception of, you know, the tops now cards and products like that. Almost every single card starts in a box or in a pack. Let's go ahead and get some, some closing thoughts or some kind of final thoughts from you guys <laughs> as we um, wrap up the show today. I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, give it back to you, Rex, for, for the, the first opportunity here to share any overall final takeaways. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, I, that I'll say uh, from a takeaway that I found, uh, I, I don't know if you'd say I disagree with it. I guess maybe I just look at it differently. He used, a, he used a baseball analogy in innings when he talked about, you know, where the card market is. You know, when he talked about the three different uh, aspects of the card market, he said, you know, where are we with people? Where are we with companies, et cetera? And uh, I, I don't like that analogy because when you talk about what inning are we in when it comes to card companies or the card market, it implies that there's an end. So, you know, a baseball game always ends, even if it goes to extra innings, at some point it ends. My view is the card market is forever. You know, it's been around for a long time uh, and it's certainly gone through peaks and valleys, but there is no end to this, in my opinion. Now, there, there are potential exit strategies from a business standpoint. I mean, there are exit strategies that people and or companies may have uh, based on their position within the hobby and or uh, the business itself. And I think those are fair to have. I mean, I have an ex I have a very specific exit strategy uh, for when I retire um, from this part of the business. Uh, and I think that's fine. But I think it's a mistake to look at uh, the overall business as a, you know, what inning are we in? Because I don't think there's any end to it. Yeah, I think that was interesting because he he starts that section by saying, I think the concept of innings is a flawed framework, but then he goes on to spend like six pages talking about what inning the different segments are in. So yeah, as a, that was a, a little bit of a puzzling takeaway. Nick, how about you? Um, I, I think that the biggest thing for me with inside of it is he, he called out a ton of the concerns of some collectors, I think with inside of the space now of scarcity, rarity and what that means. Um, I, I'm glad that he put Panini select number or one-on-ones per year and showed what that growth looked like. Um, you know, I think that anybody that was in the mid nineties when numbered cards and serial printed cards first came out, uh, they were hard to pull. Like I legitimately remember the first one that I pulled. I pulled a Ronnie Cycli row zero out of flare showcase. I remember that to this day because it was so hard to hit. 
Um, and now it's not. Um, the lure of, of even a one of one has become so watered down. And so how do you how do you strike balance with inside of that? Um, with a limited amount of products in a growing customer base. Um, it's a challenge that I, I'm not envious of <laughs> to, to figure, figure that puzzle out, but I'm glad that they, they shined a light on it, even more so specifically for Select. I love that product. It was one of my favorite um, and they ruined it for me. I won't buy it ever again because now it's in retail. Um, and so I, I'm interested to see what that looks like. I think obviously there's a looming question of, what does it look like from, uh, do they do they purchase a, a pre-existing manufacturer um, and how does that translate? Um, because I, to me, I, I'm hoping for it only so that there is some continuity with inside of the space. Um, it unlocks a lot of things. Um, I think Tops is looked at as the low hanging fruit here. And for most, most shiny card collectors, they say, yay, can I get Tops Chrome back again with inside of basketball and football? If so, I think it, is revolutionary with inside of the space because they're to at least for ultra modern and, and modern like it is where eyeballs go first um so i'm i'm glad they called out the scarcity bit um how they balance that is going to be unique um and i'm looking forward to it well thank you both i'm we spent you know a half hour 40 minutes here talking about the paper we could have gone even longer, I would encourage everybody to go check it out because we really just scratched the surface of that 53 pages. But thanks again, guys, for getting together. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Rex. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Nick. The Sports Card Shop is your small town local card shop with a global reach. Located in New Buffalo, Michigan, the shop is one of the most accessible in the Midwest. In addition to being an authorized Panini Direct Dealer, the Sports Card Shop carries all major trading card brands, including Topps, Upper Deck, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, and more. With all that new wax, a half million singles, and showcases full of graded cards, you're sure to find something great for your collection, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned collector. The Sports Card Shop is your one-stop shop. So call us, come see us, or visit us on the web and social media. Our phone number is 269-469-0140. Website is thesportscardshop at moco.com. The Sports Card Shop is part of the Moco Retail Group, connecting sports, the hobby, and people around the world. Thanks again to Nick and Rex for joining me and having that conversation. We just scratched the surface. There's so much more to unpack. If you want to hear a little bit more about Josh's thoughts, check out the Sports Cards Nonsense podcast where they had Josh on and did an interview with him, and he touched on several of the points that he made in the paper as well as some of the other thoughts he has about where this new venture is going. So check out Sports Cards Nonsense to hear that conversation with Josh as well. Let me know what you thought about our conversation, our little roundtable today. Uh, if that's something that you want me to do more of with some other guests on another topic, I'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me at waxpackhero at gmail.com. Reach out to me on Twitter at the Mike Summer at waxpackhero at Instagram or TikTok. I'd love to hear what you have to think. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and uh, leave that rating and review as well. That really helps out. Make sure you tell a friend. And that is all I have for you today, so I will catch you next time.